Well, thank you, Hannah, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name is Rob, uh, and it is my privilege and pleasure to be able to preach this afternoon. I uh, am just an ordinary member uh, of the church here. I'm not one of the pastors. Uh, So it's a real joy and a real delight and a real blessing uh, to be able to preach. And as Hannah's just read from us, we're going to be looking uh, at the letter of 1 John uh, and looking from verse 5, quite a long passage, all the way to verse 17. Um, But before we do so, let me just pray both for myself and for us as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who communicates with his people and that we can read it and that we can learn from it and that we can know you. Lord, we pray that as we come to look at the Bible, we would give it the due reverence uh, that it is, that it is not just an ancient text that we're studying, that it's not a spiritual Uh, text that we're kind of hoping to feel good about but that this is the the word of the living God Lord we pray as we come to it now that you would soften our hearts so that we are receptive and responsive to it help me as I as I seek to lead us through this passage not to preach with pride but to seek to point to you And help us as we listen to it, to listen well and to learn what you have to say to us today. And may our our hearts be filled with the joy of knowing and following Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Amen, good. Well, today I would like to begin with a little bit of a scenario, a little bit of a, a story. And it's this. There are two men and they're walking down a road and they're having a conversation to each to one another, with one another. And they're discussing how they might create a society or a world in which people never did anything wrong. And they're, and they're talking to one another and they're thinking, how could we come up with a society where everybody is good and moral? And one man says to the other that the only way to create a society in which people are good it is to have incentives so that they do good and deterrence if they do bad, right? And then the other man says to him, no, 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 and he disagrees. And he says that some people are just good because it's good to be good. <laughs> They're good for goodness sake. Um, and they disagree and they chat it over, and they're trying to work it out, and they're trying to define goodness, and they're trying to come up with what this society might look like. It's an interesting question, and it's one that, if, even if we've not framed it quite like that, we've all thought a little bit about what it would look like to live in a world where people only ever did good to us, and we only ever did good to other people. That's one of the questions, really, that our politicians are trying to work out. How do we stop people from doing bad things? And John is not really a politician, well, not at all a politician, and he's not writing politics to us here, but he is wanting to zoom in a little bit on this question of goodness and doing good. Specifically, he wants to think about that in the context of our Christian lives. What does it look like as Christians to be good people? Whatever that means. And last week, we saw something 
In the first four verses of the book of 1 John, we saw something rather amazing, I think. Uh, We saw that the word of life that was there at the beginning of, of eternity and was with God the Father and with and is himself God was also a human being who came down to earth and we could touch him and talk to him and hear him and be with him. And we learned that this word of life was, was introduced to us as the real Jesus, the eternal God come in human flesh. And Christians tend to call that the incarnation. But the question still remains as we kind of move into this next passage, what actually was the point of Jesus doing this? We, kind of, we can see that it's good, we can see that it's a, a miracle, we can see it's amazing, but Why? <laughs> Did he just come to do some miracles or tell some great stories or or maybe to show off that he was God? Or maybe he was a spiritual guru that had some enlightened wisdom. What did he actually come to do? And what John, I think, is seeking to do, as we'll see as we go through this passage, is to connect the eternal God becoming human with us, right? He wants to connect that with, with actually us and our hearts and our lives and our ordinary human living for the people that John was writing to then and for us today because this is God's word and in doing so John puts his finger on a word which you may or may not have heard of heard of I don't know you may have heard it before but not know what it means and it's the word atonement Uh, you'll see it on your service sheets Uh, I've written it there And I was a bit worried about putting it there because I I thought I might put you all off if I put a long word that people don't understand what it means. (laughs) So I hope that I don't put you off because what John is doing here is he's really wanting to explain this word. In fact, he uses the word in chapter 2 and verse 2, which is why I've wanted to use that word. So if you've never heard that word before or you're confused by it, stick with me. (laughs) Because John is really seeking to fill that word with life and meaning. And I hope that that's what we'll do today. And so first of all, as you can see on the service sheet, uh, we're going to look at what the atonement actually is. We're going to look at understanding it and defining it. And then second of all, we're going to look at living it. What does it look like to actually live out the atonement? And specifically, we're going to be thinking about what does it look like to live good, as good people, as moral people, which is something that we all want, I think. And a helpful analogy, just as we start, is to imagine building a house. I, uh, I don't really know a lot about building houses, <laughs> but, um, but if, if you were building a house, uh, you wouldn't start with the bricks, I don't think, uh, because if you did, then they would just fall down. <laughs> if you're building a house, you start with a foundation, and what John is really doing here by unpicking these concepts like the incarnation and the atonement is he's laying a foundation He's got his spade and, he, and his shovel or whatever you use to build a house. And he's laying a foundation so that when he starts talking about being good, that actually makes sense and works. That's the rest of the house. Uh, so you, you, you can't start with the bricks. You start with the foundation. And today I've titled this talk, The Foundation for Following Jesus. Uh, so that's where we're going to go. So as we dive into building this house, I... Uh, should do this. There we go. That's where we're going to go. Understanding the atonement and living the atonement. And as we dive into building this house, John opens with a big problem and a bigger solution. 
so let's look first at the big problem. Turn with me to verse 5. Uh, if, if you have your Bibles open, it's on page 1225. It's good to have them open on your laps or your own Bible, just to check that what I'm saying actually is coming from the text. Um, so let's jump in. And John tells us in verse 5 that this eternal God that has come in human flesh has a message. And and this eternal God come in human flesh has declared this message first of all to John. And now John is declaring it to his readers, which is the people in 100 AD or whenever this was written, uh, and to us today, the church. And this message is simple and it's this. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Imagine a pitch black room, totally, totally pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. I, uh, very rarely we're in pitch black rooms these days. But if you were in that situation, if you even so much as lit a match, the darkness would instantly and inevitably disappear, wouldn't it? Not completely, obviously, it'd still be a little bit dark. But, uh, but you would be able to see, the room would be illuminated. There would be no battle between light and dark as they sort of fought it out and sometimes dark wins uh, and the match goes out (laughs) and sometimes light wins the the, the darkness and light are completely incompatible and there's always going to be one winner and it's going to be light and John is really I think tapping into some of this imagery this metaphor to indicate that God is completely pure and holy we tend not to think of God like this often we sort of can, in our minds, can think of God as kind of a, a really powerful, but basically like us. <laughs> and here John is saying that's, that God, a good definition of God is that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And so we kind of have to reorient our thinking there. And it means that God doesn't hang about hand in hand with darkness. Something dark can't walk with God, no matter how much it tried, because light just consumes darkness. You get that? That's the imagery John is using. And as you see in verse 6, John says, if we, we'll look at we in a minute, claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, then we lie. So darkness and light don't go together. John's laboring the point. You might be asking at this point, what is darkness? Fair question. Um, The Bible uses the words dark and light to mean a number of different things uh, that we haven't really got loads of time to unpick. But I think morally speaking, when the Bible speaks about light, it refers to purity, morality, goodness, all all the things that we want and and crave for our perfect society, if we were using that analogy. And and darkness really refers to impurity, immorality, and badness, all the things in our world, world that we don't want. Uh, And biblically, the Bible calls some of that sin. It means a rejection and a rebellion from God. And you can't walk with God and away from God at the same time. That's obvious. Uh, So far, I think, so good. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And we might say, okay, fair enough. Uh, what we'll do now is just really attempt not to, be, not to be sinful, to do our very best to walk in the light, and if we succeed, then God will be pleased, uh, and that'll be good. But John's point in verses 8 and verses 10, if you look with me, 
uh, is that we are sinful. He uses this word sin. And any attempt to claim that we're not sinful is a lie. We walk in darkness, is John's point. Look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's pretty strong language, I think, and it's, and it's something our culture really doesn't like. Uh, we don't like to hear this. Um, but John doesn't really apologize for saying it. <laughs> Um, And I don't think we should. I think as we look in our own hearts, we see that there is something there that is not good. I think I've gone one too far. Oh, well. Um, So this obviously presents a huge problem. If God is light and we are darkness, and John's just said, we can't say that we're not sinners, but we can't claim to walk with God if we are sinners, then logically that means we can't walk with God. We can't have fellowship with the one who John has just tried to describe (laughs) we can have fellowship with. (laughs) So there's a bit of a contradiction here. There's a bit of a paradox here in that John is saying human beings and God, it's not going to work. They don't match. They're incompatible because God is light and human beings are dark in the darkness. But we said earlier that John has a bigger solution than the big problem, which is a big problem, but he doesn't dwell on the big problem that much because he's falling over himself to give them the big solution, and he's already given it, really, in verse 1 to 4. Because what he's saying is that if there is a chasm between God the Father and human beings, then we, human beings, need a saviour to fix that brokenness between God and us. And what we really need is someone to make us light so that God, can, who is light, can walk with us, who is light, who can be light. And it's important to say at this point that this saviour cannot just be another human because John has already told us that human beings, if they claim to be without sin, are liars. But this saviour cannot also be God because It is a human problem that we have, and a human needs to pay the price for our sin. And therefore, this is the reason for what we learned last week. The incarnation, God becoming flesh, the reason that happens is is so that we can be saved from darkness. And this happens through Jesus dying on the cross. Look at me with me uh, at verse 7. And John tells us at the end of verse 7 that the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When John talks about the blood of Jesus, he's really talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. That's what he means there. Uh, and, and, and you might want to ask, how? How can the eternal God who was in heaven die? That doesn't make any sense. And the answer would be, well, exactly, (laughs) it doesn't. But it did happen, and it did, because Jesus was not dying on the cross to pay for his own sins, but to pay for ours. Enabling broken sinners like you and me to be clothed in Jesus' righteousness, or light, if you will. The best way, I think, to understand this could be the word substitution, You know that word? That's not a particularly difficult word. Jesus took our place before God. Uh, And that means that when God looks on us, 
He sees Jesus' righteousness, and therefore we can walk in the light. And the word that then John uses in chapter 2 and verse 2 is the atonement. That's the word, the atonement. Atoning sacrifice is what he says. Sacrifice really refers to the Old Testament when the Israelites would sacrifice animals if they'd done something wrong. But animals didn't do anything. What John is saying is that Jesus, in his death, is the sacrifice for our sins. And, it, and the word atonement really reflects the restored relationship between God and human beings. I, as I've been kind of thinking about this week, I think there's, there's lots of ways we can define the atonement and there's lots of um, language that we can use. But if you like, it's basically walking hand in hand with God. <laughs> because he is light and we are made light by Christ. So let me, the bigger solution, you can see that on there, I can't read it, is the eternal God becomes flesh in order uh, to save us by dying on the cross, walking in the light. And this is, if you are a Christian today, the gospel that we know and that we love and that we cherish so deeply and it is rich and wholesome to be reminded of its goodness for our souls today. And our job, John writes, as Christians is to humbly confess our sins before God who forgives us and purifies us of all unrighteousness. In verse nine, John writes that. So let's move on now to what it looks like to live this atonement. We've got a bit of a definition and now John moves on to say what it looks like to live as good people, as, as people, Christians, who do good things, okay? And as we look at what that might mean, we kind of get a better sense of what the word atonement might mean, uh, and, and they kind of feed into one another, I think. So we saw last week that John is writing to a community of struggling Christians. They're struggling because they're a community of which a number of these Christians, of professing Christians, have packed their bags and left. And their people are wondering whether this gospel, whether this atonement, whether this thing that they've believed it is really all it's cracked up to be. And the people who have left the community have left because they're denying that Jesus was really a human. And John is focusing on these issues because he's wanting to encourage them. He's wanting to say, you are on the right track. You've got it. You've understood the atonement. John is not writing his letter to crush people or to challenge them or even really to, to instruct them on how to live, although that does come out. He's writing to reassure these people because they're feeling like people have left and they don't quite know whether they're really Christians or not. That's why we've titled this sermon series, That You May Know. Because it's not about challenging you, it's about reassuring you. Take a look with me at verses 12 to 14. It's a bit of a jump. We're going to come back to some of the things in the middle. It's generally agreed that John writes his letter in a fairly convoluted way. He kind of jumps a little bit. I think we called it crazy last week. Um, and so, but in the middle of this, John interrupts himself to write a poem. 
which is a bit odd, <laughs> he interrupts himself to write a poem. And in this poem, he addresses it to children, young men, and fathers, and says two things to each. And I don't think this particularly relates to gender so much, but I think it more relates to stages of our Christian journey, stages of spiritual maturity, if you like. So you've got baby Christians, you've got young Christians, and you've got older Christians, and that's irrespective of gender and age, it's stages of spiritual maturity. And John effectively says the same thing to all three. He says, your sins have been forgiven, you've known the creator from the very beginning, who was from the very beginning, and you have overcome the evil one. Note the past tense. John is saying, this has happened, you have this. He's falling over himself to pour encouragement on these people. And it's beautiful to read, really. Have you come to church today feeling discouraged? Or feeling like the Christian life is a bit meh? It's very common. I feel like that often. Maybe you're a new Christian and you're thinking, what on earth have I signed myself up for? <laughs> Maybe you're a young Christian and the excitement of the gospel that you first had has kind of become subsumed into work life and family life and relationships and, and, and you're kind of going through the motions. Uh, maybe you're a Christian who, who's been a Christian a while but you're struggling with the same sin over and over and over again and you're feeling despondent because you just can't seem to shake it off. Or maybe you've been a Christian for many, many, many years and you're looking back over your life and, and wondering whether they could have been slightly better spent. These are real emotions and, and John's readers really feel this and John is, is, is saying to them, as a father would say to his children, be encouraged because God loves you and you are walking in the light, hand in hand with God, the creator of the universe. Don't be discouraged today. And if you are discouraged, your discouragement hasn't changed anything about God and God's love for you. And John is really saying to these Christians, it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what stage of your Christian journey you are at. Go back to the cross. Go back to atonement. That's what we've just been talking about. Go back to, that, to Jesus. You are being clothed in righteousness. But all too often, even with what I've just said, even with our knowledge of this, we, we find ourselves missing the point, I think, of the atonement. Uh, we pay lip service at times to the gospel of grace. We say, yes, I believe that Jesus died for our sins and, and we're saved by grace. But our lives, we, we actually struggle to live that out in our lives. I know I do. And what John says next, we're going to look from verse 3, really, to verse 6. Uh, what John says next is, is, is actually so important because it helps us to see whether our view of the atonement is right or not. Okay? And really what he's doing here is he's talking about living the atonement. But what he says next in verse 3 feels, at first glance, rather strange. And it jars with what he's saying. Uh, because he writes in verse 3, look with me, 
that we know we ha- that we have come to know him, we know that we are Christians, if we keep his commands. That's what he says. That's in the Bible. There it is. And in verse 6, he says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There it is. Now, if someone came to me and they were struggling with doubt, they were a Christian and struggling with doubt, I might do a number of different things. I might say to them, well, you need to, you need to get stuck into your Bible more and see the evidence in the Bible, and that will help you with your doubt. Or, or I might say, uh, you need to have more faith. You need to, be, you need to have more faith, and, and that will help you with your doubt. Or I might point to experiences in their life and say, look at what God has done for you there and there and there, and that will help you with your doubt. But what I probably wouldn't do is point them to their own works. Because it opens up the possibility that they might say to me, if I say, you know you're a Christian if you're honoring Jesus and obeying his commands, it opens up the possibility they might just say, but I'm not obeying Jesus and his commands. And these verses become utterly crushing to this person They become terrifying because at best they make us despair that we might actually not be a Christian in the first place and at worst they encourage a works-based gospel in which Jesus is, God is pleased with us if we keep his commands. I, I can honestly say that as I've read this passage this week and been preparing this, I have felt crushed. Because I, I, I have read this and thought, oh no, I'm not keeping his commands. What, what, it's not a great thing to be preparing a sermon and start doubting. <laughs> so what does John mean? What, has, has he just lost the plot? <laughs> has he forgotten how to encourage people? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually John is saying something I think rather profound and very pertinent to our culture. Uh, and I have had to be and we have to be willing to open our eyes and, and, and our hearts to God's conviction here. Because I've been convicted myself as I've read this this week. What, what John is saying is something that is very simple but very profound, and I'll put it on the screen and then we'll start to explain it, and it is this. If we have a right understanding of atonement, then we will have a right understanding of ethics. So if we have a right understanding of the atonement, and by that I mean that we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness because of what he did on the cross, and we're walking hand in hand with the Father who is light then we can understand ethics, and by that I mean morals, doing good. Okay? Let me try to elucidate this a little bit more. Uh, And to do that, look back with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. And John here, he's recognizing that sometimes we sin. We can come back to that a little bit, in a little while. And he's urging us not to sin. But then he says that if anyone does sin... They have someone who speaks to the Father in their defense, okay? They have someone who speaks to the Father in their defense. In fact, I have prepared from a different version of the NIV, unfortunately, and which is better, because here the word is advocate. And the word in Greek is the word parakletos, which means nothing to us, and neither does the word advocate, really. It's a bit of a strange word. What does that mean? 
The old NIV translates that as the one who speaks to the Father in our defense, which is wordy. What does that mean? Sometimes we read these words and we see the word advocate and we might think that Jesus is in heaven on his, hand, on his knees pleading with God to not destroy us when we sin. So we do something wrong and God's thinking, oh, I've got him this time. And Jesus is there going, no, God, please, please don't hurt him. Is that what it's like? Doesn't that quite sound, really? But sometimes our view of atonement runs a little bit like this, which is not too dissimilar. We're sinners. God loves us and he wants to save us and he wants to be in a relationship with us. He really does. So he sends his son Jesus who dies on the cross for us, who wipes the slate of sin clean, meaning that we're right with God and we've now got to roll up our sleeves and get on with it. God has saved us, but all he's done is given us a fresh start and a clean slate. And now, really, God's in heaven with his fingers crossed, hoping that we don't muck it up again. <laughs> is that God? Is that what's going on between God and Jesus? He's thinking, please don't do it again because I've tried to save you once and I don't want to have to do it again. But that's not atonement and that's not what John's talking about when he uses this word advocate. And I've been really challenged by this as I've prepared it because I, I've, I kind of move over these verses without quite realizing what John is talking about. Because the word advocate refers really to a legal requirement. Jesus is saying to God the Father in heaven that the debt of sin has already been paid for by his death on the cross. And in effect, it is illegal for God to punish a sinner who is a Christian for sin because that would be punishing the same sin twice. That makes sense? It's already been paid for. And so Jesus, when he is in heaven, being an advocate or pleading with the Father, is not saying, oh, please, God, don't hurt him. Please, please, please. He's saying, you can't hurt him or her because I've already paid for that sin. That person is clothed in righteousness. Actually, when you think about it, this is the only way that God, who is light, cannot consume us when we're in darkness is if this is a binding, legal, completed thing. God is not wondering whether or not to forgive us when we sin, and it's not contingent on whether he's in a good mood or not. And more importantly, it's not contingent on our works. We are clothed in righteousness. That has happened. Sure, we sin. John knows this. We know this. But Jesus is pointing to a legal framework, which means that our sin is already dealt with. Now, it's worth me making clear here at this point that the Father and Son are not at odds here. Jesus is not persuading God who would much prefer to destroy us, because that would paint God as an evil and capricious and Jesus as the loving appeaser. Uh, I think it's important. It doesn't come quite from the passage here, but it comes later in John, that salvation is really a product of the Trinity as a whole. The Father sends the Son to do this. So it's not that they're doing slightly different things. I think that's important to say. But let me now try and connect this with how we live. And verse 3, all of a sudden, is transformed, if you understand what we're talking about here, 
Because if Jesus has fully, has truly saved you and your salvation is not in any way contingent on your works, then you are free to live ethically or morally or, or goodly. <laughs> it's easiest to see this, I think, in the form of a contrast. Without the atonement or, 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 or with a faulty view of the atonement that we've, that we've just been describing, you're either going to do one of two things. You're either going to say, yes, I can obey God's commands. I know I can do it. I'm going to do it. I'm a Christian. And you're going to start to feel confident and proud and arrogant because the Christian life looks livable to you. Or, and this I think is what's going on for John's readers, is you're going to think, I can't do it. You're going to look at God's commands and you're going to go, but they're too hard. How could I possibly live the Christian life and be sinless as John seems to be commanding? It's too difficult. And John's words in verse 3 become crushing to us. Let me try and make this really, really clear. If you are a Christian, you have been saved from sin. This means that sin has no hold on you. You are free in Christ. That means you are able by God's grace to not sin. And you are able to please God and for him to delight in you which is amazing. That is a massive encouragement to Christians and the reason why John writes this little poem. John is saying to these Christians that they have life and they have life to the very full, to the max, because of the atonement. And the ones who have left, the ones who have have left this community can never get the thing that they're seeking because they're seeking for it in the wrong place. Life is yours Go out and live it, serving God and living out his commands. And that is how you know that you are a Christian, because God's commands are a joy to you and not a burden. They can only be a joy to you if you are a Christian, because you are, if you are trusting in the atonement, if you're trusting in the atonement, then you're trusting in God. And if you're not trusting in the atonement, you're trusting in your ability to obey God's commands. Does that make sense? So if you have a right view of atonement, you have a right view of ethics. There's a lot of words there, (laughs) and I hope they connect. I've been moved as I've looked at these words, because I, as I read it, felt deeply crushed and was like, oh, why do I have to preach this? (laughs) Why does John write this? Why does this have to be in the Bible? (laughs) Because it seems so harsh. But John is saying something profound about the way we so often fail to understand what Jesus actually did on the cross for us. It's worth me saying at this point that I'm not saying, and nor is John, that we never sin. Of course we do. Uh, We do because we're not not made completely new yet, and battling the flesh and and the world is a key part of living as a Christian. That is very real. And honouring God is imperfect, it's messy, we know that. But when you become a Christian, you really do grow to love and serve and do God's commands. It doesn't happen all at once. It's painful and messy, I realize that. But it will happen if you are a Christian. And this is why John's words are encouraging and not crushing. If you are crushed by John's words here, as I was, and you feel the burden of having to live a sinless life that John seems to command, then you have not understood the atonement. 
and you've not understood God's words. You're thinking that you have to do a bunch of things in order to, for God to be pleased with you, and that thought will only ever cripple you. God is already pleased with you and made it possible for you to serve him. Now, let me move on. I've only actually preached half of the passage here, um, but I plan to do that, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, so let me briefly just sketch out the rest. For the rest of this book, really, it's only a short letter, John has two things that mark out a Christian, that define the life of a Christian, and they are this, obeying, love, God, love God's commands, and love God's people. That's really it. Uh, the first comes in verses 3 to 8, John, where John is talking about keeping God's commands. Uh, and in verses 7 to 8, John writes these slightly confusing things about old and new commands. I don't know whether you picked up on that. I, I think that when John is writing this, he's talking, uh, really, he's saying that loving God is a command that comes right from the beginning of the Bible. It, it's an old command. But it's a new command because we do it in Christ. Okay? I think that's what those two things mean. But come and ask me afterwards if you want. Uh, the second thing, to love one another, is from verses 9 to 11. Uh, John writes that anybody who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is actually in the darkness. So he's saying the same thing, but he's, he's zooming in on, on, on our relationships. Uh, and for the rest of this book, John is really seeking to say these two things, love God, love one another. And in verses uh, 15 to 17, if you flick over the page, uh, that was the, the end of the passage that I'm preaching today, John is really saying the opposite of those two things on the screen, which is to love the world. And that doesn't mean to like the world and think the world is a nice place, but to love the, the pleasures of the world. Look, at he says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's to go searching for your atonement anywhere else but the cross. Okay? So I'm kind of skipping past these two things, and the reason I'm doing that is because we're still in the foundation stage of laying our house. Okay? We're still, we're really, well, we've just finished, I guess, laying the foundation. And the foundation is the atonement, and what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at living that and what it looks like to obey God's commands and to love his people. And if you flick over the page, you'll see some of the titles in the NIV uh, have these things. God's love and ours. Let us love one another. Let's make sure we obey God's commands. That's where we're going to go. And those things are the bricks. And we've laid the foundation. Good. Let me finish um, with some practical applications for you guys. I think that there are two types of Christian that the book of John really, really speaks to profoundly. And the first is a doubting Christian, a Christian who is struggling with doubt. Uh, and the second is a sinning Christian, a Christian who is struggling with sin. If you are a doubting Christian today, please talk about it. That's a good thing to do. Don't hide it. Don't, don't, don't think it's embarrassing or, 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 or somehow ungodly to doubt. And remember, too, that there are many forms of doubt, intellectual doubt. But John here is speaking about people who think that they are not saved, people who are struggling with assurance. And if that is you today, 
as well as talking about it, the answer is to get to the foot of the cross. John says here that our sins are forgiven and we are made whole. And as our sins are forgiven, then our life has its pattern. If you are doubting, God's love for you is not dependent on whether you're doubting or not. God loves you and cares for you deeply. And generally, if you're doubting in this way, it is through thinking that you have to bring something to God rather than understanding the atonement, which is that God has completed the work in you. If you are a sinning Christian today and you are struggling with sin, this book can feel very, 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 very hard to read. But it only feels really crushing if you fail to grasp the atonement. And so my message to you today is not go away and stop sinning, but go away and learn the atonement. Because our sin should convict us if we're at the foot of the cross, but it should never crush us. We need to learn that if we do not love God's commands, and if God's commands are a burden to us, then we love something else. And we're serving something else, and that is a big problem. And if you are sinning as a Christian, and struggling, and feeling despondent because you're sinning, as I often do, get to the foot of the cross. Because there your sin has been taken away, and it is there that you realize that God has enabled you not to sin. That doesn't mean we don't still sin. John knows this. There is a state of imperfection. But we can truly please God with our actions when we grasp the beauty and the freedom of the atonement. Very finally, very finally, uh, you may not be a Christian today. And you may have fallen asleep thinking that this is not relevant to you. And if you are not a Christian, we do want you to hear a simple challenge that without the atonement, the good life, the moral life, the life that those two men are trying to create is not possible. Sure, people who are not Christians can do good things, and the reverse is true. People who are Christians can do very bad things. But to be really freed from from the, the, the restraint of having to do good things comes at the cross and so if you if you're a non-christian or someone who isn't a christian who wants to create a good society start here start with the foundations 